Ladies and gentlemen and Corner Kick fam, welcome back to the Corner Kick podcast. We have a bit of a different format for you today. In the first bit of our show, you're going to hear from me, Nick Evinden, and also from a man who did not sky his penalty in a crucial League Cup final costing his team dearly. It is Caleb Rhodes. Yes, although to be fair, my, my finishing has been described as Kepa-esque in the past. So <laughs> do it <laughs> do it that what you will. Oh dear. Um, but yes, so we will so this first bit will be Caleb and I. We had a bit of a scheduling hiccup this week. So we're presenting one singular show, but in two parts. So you will get, you know, a full corner kick episode. But it will be Caleb and I discussing the Carabao Cup. We'll be discussing the big news from the Premier League, Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, leaving Leeds, Jesse Marsh entering Leeds. We're going to talk about Manchester United, the Everton penalty debacle, all that good stuff. We're going to talk briefly about La Liga. And then in the next part of our show with Caleb and Nathan, uh, they'll be getting more into the weeds of some really serious discussions. And, And Caleb, I think we would be remiss to not open our podcast by saying, I think we are very sensitive to the fact that there are things in life in in this global landscape that are far more important than the game that we discuss on this show. And I think in the latter part of last week and into into the beginning of this week, the dominant news story in the world and really, you know, the object of everyone's major concern has been, you know, the situation in Ukraine uh, and the invasion and really some of the scary scenes coming out of there this weekend. So I I think it would be, you know, inappropriate for us not to briefly touch on that at the top of our show before you and Nathan talk about more of the soccer ramifications for that in the next part of our, of our show. Which, which are, which are great. Like, I think this is one of these moments, like this is a massive news story, right? Russia invading Ukraine, which is horrible and, and horrifying and all those things you just said. But as it turns out, this conflict is deeply intertwined with with the soccer world in various ways and you know i look forward to getting into it with with nathan on the back half of this episode yeah and obviously our thoughts are with you know the people of ukraine and anyone you know affected by these really scary and trying events it's a really i think anxiety inducing and scary time for everyone so you know our thoughts are with those who are affected and yeah like you said you and nathan will get into the weeds in terms of the more soccer specific stuff that's been coming out in the past 48 hours or so but let us there's no easy way to transition here but let us transition to sunday the carabao cup final between chelsea and my beloved liverpool football club caleb the game finished nil nil after extra time and after what has to be said is potentially the greatest ever penalty shootout to take place in a English final at the very least, certainly the highest scoring penalty shootout to ever take place in the English final. It finished Liverpool 11, Chelsea 10. 
after every single outfield player for both clubs scored their penalties, Quibin Kelleher, the young Irish reserve goalkeeper for Liverpool, steps up, slots his penalty away like an experienced striker, leaving Kepa Ariza Balaga, you know, famed. <laughs> the man is history in this game with Maurizio Sarri and not wanting to come off. He'd been subbed on for, I would say, man of the match and Eduard Mendy, who had been having an absolute blinder of a game in the goal for Chelsea. Uh, he comes on to, you know, quote unquote, be the penalty specialist of the day, and he blazes the losing penalty over the bar. Liverpool win their ninth League Cup. Uh, they are adding another piece to the champions' wall. Jurgen Klopp's team picks up another piece of silverware. And I think on this show last month, I said that this Liverpool team is a team that needs to be accruing trophies and getting some more medals in the trophy cabinet just for how extremely high quality they've been under Jurgen Klopp in the past three years. And Caleb, I think, would you say that, you know, in this is, I think for a nil, no, this is a highly entertaining game. Obviously there are some, you know, refereeing controversies and and goals being ruled out and things like that. But in my opinion, I think the right team won on the day. Yeah, I agree. I think, I think the right team probably won, but I think both teams could have easily won this game and as you said the, it finished nil nil in regular time and through extra time but it was so gloriously entertaining i think this this will go down i think as as a classic and and it deserves to and just the storyline from you know minute negative you know 30 up through minute you know 150 with with penalties was truly insane Obviously, you know, before the game even started, there was the news of Abramovich kind of taking a step back in his control of Chelsea, which, you know, maybe Nathan and I will talk about later. Then and Thomas had- Tuchel saying that, you know, the invasion was an unsettling thing in the Chelsea camp and that, you know, yeah. their, the Roman Abramovich element was a bit of a distraction to the team. Yeah, absolutely. And then you have, you know, Thiago, who was, who was meant to start going down injured in the warm-ups. Uh, Nabi Keita would take his place in the starting 11. Harvey Elliott would be elevated from, you know, just outside of the final match squad into the bench and would then, you know, play, you know, 50, 60 odd minutes after coming on as a sub. I thought both teams really, really went for this. And it was just a, a feast, an absolute feast of attacking play. The only issue was sort of some terrible finishing um, from everyone, probably especially Mason Mount, but as you said, some amazing goalkeeping. Mendy had a fantastic double save, including a point blank stop on um, Sadio Mane. Luis Diaz, I thought, was excellent. Like everybody was really playing up to their level. I thought Christian Pulisic was amazing. I thought Kai Havertz was great. It was just for whatever reason, they could not actually get the ball in the back of the net in a way that counted. Now, obviously, there were, there were a few instances in this game. The first one was when um, Joel Matip thought he had got the opener, um, but VAR ruled that in the build-up to the play, Virgil van Dijk was just a hair off sides, and even though he didn't play the ball, he impeded uh, like Reese James, who it should also be said, after Azpilicueta went down injured, made his first appearance in two months um, in, in this cup final. An interesting question there, I think maybe we'll just kind of sequentially go through the game from this point out, is if Virgil van Dijk had been on sides in that situation, would that goal have counted? 
I think so. I think it probably would have because I feel like jostling in the penalty area and things like that has just become like a common occurrence in the game. And obviously with the inclusion of VAR, these incidents are somewhat micromanaged. However, I don't think like Reese James wasn't really involved with the play. And I don't know if you can really adjudicate whether or not he would have even gotten to the ball or whether he would have even been able to make an attempt. Sadio Mane obviously gets to the header and he heads it across the box for Matip to finish at the uh, at the far post. So I'm I'm pretty sure that if Van Dyke was, you know, marginally onside, this goal would have stood. But I think if you're a Chelsea fan, you know, you look at the Kai Havertz goal and you look at the Lukaku or you look at the Kai Havertz disallowed goal and you look at the Lukaku disallowed goal. And it's another, you know, case of <laughs> in a in a big spot like this, you know, the English VAR in particular being a game of millimeters and not inches. Yeah, it, it, was, it was a very strange situation. And I just think sort of adjudicating whether Reese James, you know, like would have gotten there had Van Dyke, who was, to be clear, wasn't like pulling or really like, you know, holding him back. It was just kind of, he was vaguely in the way. It was, it was like a, a quarter pick, I would say, a partially moving screen at most. Um, and it, I think the goal probably should have stood, but... The game, the game was just was just nuts for this reason, and it felt like we were so close to goals all the time. I mean, on the day, Liverpool had you know twenty something shots, Chelsea had eleven. There were you know seven big chances created across the t- uh, each team. They both had you know around five hundred passes. It really was you know uh, it, it it was it was an ultimate spectacle, and you know it became the biggest possible spectacle when, as you mentioned. It was about to, it was, you know, minutes away from being penalties. And then Thomas Tuchel makes the decision to bring on Kepa. Now, I, I think there's a few ways to analyze, like, you know, a goalkeeper change right before a penalty shootout. I, I will say that I, time, I discovered yeah. today that yeah. this was a pre-planned switch. So Edward yeah. Mendy and Kepa both knew that if the game was going to penalties, you know, Mendy would be brought off and Kepa would be coming on regardless yeah. of, you know, obviously no one could have predicted the heroics that Mendy would go through in right, this right. game. This man was putting his body on the line. There were several times when he was like down on the ground, you know, clutching his stomach, clutching his legs. You know, he obviously is, is playing through some pain. And I think what you're about to bring up is like, you know, the psychology element yeah. and also just like the momentum element, right? And, and I think I think that I find kind of interesting is that Edouard Mendy just won a major trophy, yep. you know, the African Cup of Nations, by winning a penalty shootout. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, I think there's definitely a psychological element here. And I think the last time this happened, or at least the last time I remember this happening on like a, a stage like this, um, was I think it was the 2014 World Cup, Tim Carroll. Netherlands versus yep versus Costa Rica, um, and was it Louis Van Hall in that tournament, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Who decided to bring on Tim Cruel for was it Stecklenburg? It was, um, and I think in that instance, you know, it wasn't totally clear whether Tim Cruel was necessarily that much better at penalty stopping than Stecklenburg, but it really was just like oh, like they must have something, you know saved up and in this case i think there if it was really pre-planned i think keppa probably must be a slightly better you know penalty shot stopper but then you know that decision just makes what what followed so so confusing because obviously 
before games like this, teams will do sort of exhaustive research to try to find every penalty that any player on these teams have taken and try to sort of give the goalies that type of information to know, you know, whether a player favors one side over the other. Obviously, you know, Mendy would have had, you know, the inside lane on Sadio Mane, although Mane was subbed off by the time the penalty shootout started. Um, but it's crazy then that not only did the penalty shootout go to the goalkeeper round, but that there were no saves throughout the entire shootout. And, you know, Keppa just went the wrong way a bunch of times. So and I don't know if it was a, a preparation problem or what, but this, this certainly didn't work out uh, <laughs> at all. And yeah, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll couch this next statement first by saying that, yes, Cleveland Kelleher did not make a single save in the shootout either. He did guess the right way a bunch of times and he got close. He didn't make but any Kelleher, saves in the But shootout. Kelleher wasn't brought on. Exactly. For the penalty shootout, right? Like, and and, but Keppa really just got emasculated <laughs> in the shootout. You know, first and foremost by you know the Fabinho Paneca situation where he gets like absolutely toasted for that goes the wrong way. Fabinho just dinks it right down the middle, and then you know the what I think is probably gonna go down as like one of my top three favorite penalties of all time you know Keppa stands to the left of his goal essentially leaving like no space for Virgil van Dijk he's essentially saying to van Dijk you know you have you know essentially two-thirds of the goal of the right side of the, of the right side of the goal to shoot at like I invite you to shoot there van Dijk just powers it uh, right through Keppa on the side where he's like protecting and then stares him down in this like Michael Jordan-esque fashion. It was so brutal. You know, Salah makes his penalty uh, and then Salah just kind of like laughs in Kepa's face. You know, this the thing that I will say about Liverpool in this final, as opposed to Chelsea, and I know this Chelsea team, you know, they're fresh off of winning the European Cup. They just won uh, the Club World Cup as well. But Chelsea, there's still like a lot of young players in and around this Chelsea team. You know, Trevor Chalaba started this game. You know, players like Mason Mount, who have been to big international tournaments with England, obviously winning the Champions League, Kai Havertz scoring the goal in the Champions League final. I just thought Liverpool overall in this game had a greater sense of composure and a greater sense of they know who they are. They know what their identity is. And maybe that is just a case of Liverpool are just in a bit of a better form right now. They're aware that, you know, they're through their injury crisis that happened um, mid-season somewhat where a lot of players were dropping. Diogo Jota was back in the team. It just seems like the mood around Liverpool and the composure and the experience of players like Milner in a penalty shootout and extra time really helped them get over the line here. And I think that bodes well because we talk about, you know, the importance of the League Cup. And yes, it's obviously not the most important trophy. But if you win a trophy mid-season, you know, statistically, that does bode well for the rest of your campaign. And, and the quadruple, as unlikely as it is, is still very much on for Liverpool who play in the FA Cup on Wednesday against Norwich. And I think winning a trophy like this is only going to buoy uh, this team going into the latter stage of the season. Yeah, no, I think a few points. Obviously, this... You know, normally, as you said, people don't really care that much about the Carabao Cup. Um, although for this year, this season, for whatever reason, I think it had more energy. And I think, you know, it being the only trophy that Klopp had yet to win with, with Liverpool, I think definitely added a certain amount of interest to it. So much so that I even attempted to purchase some Carabao um, at halftime, although I was, I was unfortunately foiled as H-Mart was, was out because I assume everyone else was also buying Carabao. 
uh, for the it's really the biggest Cup. news story of the weekend. It, it really is. I mean, yeah. Um, but yeah, I think a few things. One, I know, I know you're talking about composure and Liverpool's penalty thing. I thought everybody displayed excellent composure. Yeah, like yeah, it's, yeah. it's crazy to go, you know, 21 shots in a row through, you know, your strikers, your midfielders, often, and a lot of these substitutes too. You know, young players like Harvey Elliott, who I was worried might have a kind of Bukayo Saka, you know, like moment, um, who dispatched his. There was there was a level of composure in this penalty shootout that was really, really impressive, especially just because penalties are just such a different skill than anything else. If you're a good forward, you're not necessarily a great penalty taker, aka or a la rather like Messi, for instance. So I I was just impressed all around, and then you know, the moment with Kepa at the end where he didn't really look like he was, he believed that he could score. And when he blazed it over the top, doing his best, you know, imitation of, of Sergio Ramos, his, his compatriot, that, that seemed like you could see it coming. But so I just wanted to get that out in terms of, yeah, the implications of this. I mean, all of a sudden, Liverpool, as you said, are not only, you know, gunning for a quadruple, they are especially back in a, a Premier League race that, you know, a month ago did not look like it was going to be super exciting. They have a game in hand and are six points behind um, Manchester City. So if they win their, you know, upcoming game against, let's see, uh, West Ham uh, on Saturday, then, you know, they could be as close as to within three points, which you know, in my book with, you know, like 12 or so games to go is, is very much a title race. And so this, I hope galvanizes, you know, an exciting end to the season. And, you know, especially with Liverpool versus Manchester City coming up on April 10th, which as of now looks like it could be a, a title decider. Yeah. And that's the, that's going to be the biggest game of the latter half of the season. And I think I'm obviously very nervous for that game because Liverpool rarely can get a result at the Etihad, but I think it is crucial, as you're saying, that, you know, they're going to come out of this weekend with a lot of momentum, silverware in hand, which is usually silverware that for the past many seasons at this point has belonged to Manchester City. You know, now Liverpool are in that position of picking up the first trophy of the season. And, you know, they're already, you know, halfway through their Champions League tie with Inter, you know, barring some sort of catastrophe at Anfield. I think it's pretty safe to say that they will be in the quarterfinals of the Champions League. And I think you know, Norwich is a pretty decent draw in the FA Cup. And I think this Liverpool team now, with the depth that they have, with the additions of Luis Diaz, who has really hit the ground running, and you know Jota coming back to full fitness, Firmino eventually coming back to full fitness, it looks like Thiago picked up a slight tight hamstring injury. Hopefully that won't leave him out for too, too long. I think Liverpool have A, options. And you can look at that just by saying that, hey, Harvey Elliott wasn't even in the matchday squad for this game. And they were able to draft in a player of his quality to really provide them with an extra, an extra element going into the latter stage of this game. And I think they are, you know, poised to compete on all fronts for the remainder of the season. What implications do you think this has? You know, you'll obviously touch on the the Roman Abramovich side of this with Nathan, but what implications do you think this has for Thomas Tuchel and this Chelsea team, who are now, um, yeah. You, you know, they're lingering in third in the Premier League, you know, just mm-hmm. lost a big cup final in a heartbreaking way, are obviously still in the FA Cup in the Champions League. But I don't think this is the season that they really thought that they were going to have after signing Romelu Lukaku and winning the Champions League this summer. 
Yeah, you know, in a lot of ways, I feel like we, we've been waiting for this Chelsea team. Even when they won the Champions League last year, we thought that they would sort of kick on from there. They'd bring in Lukaku. It would get great. Even last year when, or two years ago when they brought in like Ferner and all those people, we thought that it was going to be this like super high-powered offense. And an offense is what continues to sort of elude them, and they still haven't gelled. I still don't know who their kind of like ideal mixture of front three is. Um, I think, you know, Ziyech was a big miss. Uh, in in this game after some good form recently. So I actually think they put together a better performance than I expected. I think offensively, I was sort of more impressed than I expected to be. And so I don't think this is like the most concerning loss because at the end of the day, you know, they ended up losing on penalties on the 22nd kick because their goalkeeper missed a penalty. So I think there's an optimistic way to read all of that. Um, But I do wonder, you know, like where they what they think they can really achieve this season or what are their new goals? Do they refocus to the FA Cup? Um, they have an even kinder fifth-round draw with Luton Town. Um, and so I think there are some opportunities, but certainly they have sort of political clouds hanging over them, and I think a question of like who they think they are um, identity-wise um, could, could plague them going forward. But in fact, this game I don't think showed as many cracks as, as I expected, if that makes sense. Indeed. Well, let us move on from the Carabao Cup, which is wrapped up in Liverpool red. Carabao. Thank God. I was really, I'm, I'll tell you something. I was really nervous <laughs> coming into Sunday. I think Liverpool have neglected that trophy for so long that it felt really good to lift it. And also, you know, to now be the winningest team once again in League Cup history. So I think both of those things are very, very good for Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool. And, you know, very, very good for my Sunday, which could have started out, you know, in a very depressing fashion, but it ended up being a great day. So good for me. Uh, let us move on to that's another. That's really about. Obviously. That's is, dude, soccer is all about me. It's all about my <laughs> happiness. That's really what it's all about. <laughs> yeah, listen, if you're, using, if you're using soccer and 11 men on the field to, you know, determine your you know, state of happiness in your own life, I think you have some self-evaluating to do, perhaps. And it's, but a, anyways. It's, a, it's a dangerous game. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> anyways, you know what else is a dangerous game, Caleb? What? Conceding around 20 goals oh God, in it's... a month, <laughs> which is what has happened to Marcelo Bielsa in Leeds this February. Marcelo Bielsa, after a three-and-a-half-year tenure with one of the more famous teams in English football history, you know, bringing them back to the bright lights of the Premier League, redefining their style, um, cultivating this incredible relationship with the ownership group, the 49ers ownership group, and um, Victor Orta, the sporting director, and Andrea Rajazani um, has left, has left the club. You know, he's departed by mutual consent. I think it was pretty clear that, you know, the injuries had taken a toll on this team. I don't think Marcelo Bielsa has had a fully fit team in the past year and a half, or at least in the team's Premier League recent existence. But I think you had to say that the damage had been done. Clearly, there were some tactical flaws beginning to unravel in the Bielsa man-marking system. And he has departed with what has to say is really great fanfare from the Leeds United support, who I think there is definitely a contingent of them that would have rather gone down with Bielsa than seeing him leave. But I think Leeds made the sensible decision here and uh, cut ties while you know still mired in this relegation fight. Yeah, I mean, I think this was a decision that had 
had to be made. Leeds are now, you know, in 16th place. They are two points above the drop, but Burnley, who are just two points behind them, have two games in hand. As you mentioned, you know, their recent results are, are rather horrifying. Um, 4-0 loss to Tottenham, 6-0 loss to Liverpool, 4-2 loss to Manchester United, a 3-0 loss to sort of, you know, relegation rivals Everton, um, a 3-3 draw with Aston Villa, and then a 1-0 loss to a, a sort of rejuvenated Newcastle side. And, you know, I, I agree. It, it's a very bittersweet thing. I think a change had to be made. But I think there is a deep appreciation for, you know, what he's done in returning leads to the Premier League um, in sort of rehabilitating or even like, you know, strengthening and bringing up the careers of, you know, someone like Calvin Phillips, who, who thanked him online, and you know, who I don't think would be in the England squad, but for Marcelo Bielsa, Patrick Bamford too, players like Jack Harrison, etc. I think basically the undoing of Bielsa, which I think is often the undoing of Bielsa, he tends to sort of, you know, there are high highs and very low lows, is that he doesn't really compromise on how he wants to play. And unfortunately, with a lot of these players missing, like Calvin Phillips, um, like some defenders, he just didn't have the resources to sort of play his meticulous and incredibly sort of athletic and, and strenuous system. And when you don't compromise, when you don't adapt, when you don't have the resources to, to, to continue doing what you're doing, this is what happens. You know, you concede 14 goals in, in three games, which is, is, is bad. It, it, it's, it's really bad. And so it's unfortunate that he's going, but I think he did a great service to Leeds and it, it was just time. It was just time. And let's talk about the man that's coming in after the man. It is American manager Jesse March who left RB Leipzig lingering in 11th place in the Bundesliga this season. He's coming into, Caleb, what I think is going to be an incredibly difficult task for him. We know he's an extremely yeah. competent coach. You know, he comes from the Red Bull coaching tree, which is this extremely specific brand of soccer in Europe, a very intense game, you know, similar to the Bielsa sense in marking in terms of the, the defensive marking, definitely not as man marking oriented, definitely a more zonal approach to the game. And I think any manager who is coming into this team after and, and picking up the pieces of the impact that Bielsa has had on the tactical imprint of this Leeds United squad was going to have an incredibly incredibly difficult time just trying to like reorganize this team and getting them used to a complete 180 in terms of their approach but you know Jesse March is a very high profile hire for Leeds he's going to obviously need to simplify things and stop the goals from leaking in what's your impressions of you know the American coming to the Premier League and everything that comes with it I think he he will, as you said, he played for in a in the Red Bull system, which is similar, kind of like tactically strange at times. Um, it didn't really work out at, at Leipzig, but I think he didn't really get as much of a chance as he probably deserved. And so maybe he's the the right kind of guy to, you know, figure out which pieces of the Bielsa system can stay um, and which ones can go. If nothing else, I still think it's like a pretty progressive and, and forward-looking appointment for the club that you know, very well could have looked for, you know, one of the, the tried and true um, kind of like relegation avoiding, you know, managers, you know, like Sam Allardyce type figures come to mind, which I think would have been a, a large departure 
from the kind of expansive, positive, I think idealistic type of football that Bielsa at points really, really had them, had them playing. Um, and so I think in a weird way, they're doubling down. Um, and so it could go very, very wrong and I could see them getting relegated, but I, I respect the kind of continuity of philosophy that Leeds seem to have. Um, so I have a certain admiration for that, if nothing else. Speaking about continuity, let's continue to Manchester City winning by slightly dubious means once again this season <laughs> in a uh, a one nil victory against Frank Lampard's Everton, who I will say I thought Frank Lampard's Everton really get smacked in this game. I thought it was going to be like a four nil, five nil thumping, especially considering City were coming off of uh, losing that epic game at the death to Tottenham in the week prior, usually after a loss, City go out and pummel their next team that they play. So I thought it was going to be the case for Lamps and Everton. They didn't. I thought Everton put up a really brave fight. I thought this was a very tactically astute performance from Lampard and Everton. I thought they frustrated City quite a bit. But in the end, it was a um, kind of a mess at the back, which led to Phil Foden tapping in a late goal in the 82nd minute. However, the major controversy in this game is Abdullah Dekure and Everton being denied a penalty, a Rodrigo handball was overturned in a way that Frank Lampard described as incompetence at best and that his 12-year-old daughter would have been able to see that that was a clear penalty. You know, Lamps <laughs> losing his cool once again, which seems to be somewhat of a trend for him. But, you know, Caleb, what was your take on this incident? And obviously the impact that this is going to have with City picking up another three points and separating themselves uh, ahead of Liverpool by six again. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree that it was it was a penalty. It's kind of crazy that it wasn't. I feel like a lot of these VAR decisions um, are, you know, when you like say a word over and over again and then suddenly it like loses all meaning or you could convince yourself of anything. I feel like when you watch a replay of something in slow motion, like enough over and over again, you can convince yourself, you know, anyway. And I think there's a weird pressure when you go to the VAR booth to like, want to overturn whatever like the ruling was on the field um so i think it's it's very disappointing and you know it has big implications at the top and bottom of the table everton crazy 22 points one point above burnley they're in 17th place right now they do have some games in hand um over you know teams around them like Leeds, whom they have two games in hand over Brentford, who they have three games in hand over, but they are very much mired in this relegation fight. And then City, you're right, you think, say this had been a nil-nil draw, suddenly Liverpool would, you know, be four points behind with a game in hand. So this is the type of, you know, situation where VAR is in a lot of ways deciding, you know, like the fates of teams. Um, and I know there's still plenty of soccer to be played, et cetera, et cetera, but I think if you are these teams, you're like, wow, you know, how crazy would it be if I went down because I was missing two points if you're Everton, right? Um, it reminds me of, you know, the thin margins of when, you know, John Stones kept out that Liverpool goal by, you know, like micro micrometers. Um, and, and that was enough to, to win them the Premier League. So a lot of things are decided on the margins. And this is the type of margin that could, could come to haunt Everton and could come to like bring joy and, and fulfillment to, to Manchester City. 
Yeah, absolutely. I will say I was very torn as this game was going on about which way I wanted it to go. Obviously, I did in the end want Everton to steal some points off City. However, I also really want Everton to go down because I think that would be hilarious, quite frankly. Uh, so I sent the, the Jordan Peele sweating emoji about like, what would I rather like City score? Would I rather, you know, Everton? Uh, Everton. <laughs> <laughs> or, or like that, the red button meme. Yeah, absolutely. You know, like the two red buttons and the guy sweating. <laughs> so I was definitely, I was definitely torn about whether or not I wanted City to win and yeah. for them to but condemn Everton. But here's the Everton. thing, though, like you don't, you don't really want Everton to get relegated. No, I don't. I don't. Like, I just think it'd be, I think it'd be kind of comical. I really don't. I think, yeah, this this is a club that's like clearly suffering quite yeah. a bit right now, both internally and externally. So, and I think the Merseyside Derby is a really good spectacle for the Premier League. So I don't want Everton to go down in the end. Uh, is yeah. it Schadenfreude? Absolutely, but I did want them to steal some some points from City here, and I did also think it was a penalty. I think you're absolutely spot on with what you said about you know the interpretations of VAR. Uh, before we move on to La Liga, there is one man that we did want to quickly shout out, Caleb, and that is Brentford's Christian Eriksen, who returned to the field of play after his cardiac incident at Euro 2020. I thought you know in a weekend of you no know, really harsh anxiety inducing stressful news stories this to see the reaction that he got uh to see his face to see him run on a football pitch even you know in a brentford loss to newcastle even in a tough situation where he's coming on with brentford down to 10 men i thought this was the feel-good story by far of the weekend and potentially you know of the entire you know latter half of the season so far Oh yeah, this this is this is just one of those those feel good moments. I mean, this is a player who for good reason we thought may never you know take the field ever again and so to see him on a soccer pitch in any capacity um is is just a joy especially, you know, on a weekend that, you know, has been marred by a lot of not joy. And as we know, you know, these heart things these hard things do cause retirement. I mean, Sergio Aguero, you know, didn't have a cardiac arrest on the field, but, you know, he had to retire this year because of a heart problem. And you, now he talks about how he can like barely run without getting totally out of breath. So this is, this is a miracle um, in a lot of ways. And I think Erickson probably can't be happier to, to be out on the field for Brentford. And I'm glad he, you know, he was able to find a home at, you know, a top division club. Yeah. And I'm excited to see, you know, how Brentford use him, how a manager like Thomas Frank uses him in their setup. Brentford, I think have been in kind of a rut for a little bit. And I think the injection of a player, not only like of, with the story of Christian Eriksen, but also let's not forget that this is a player with immense quality on the ball. I think is going to be a great inclusion to this Brentford team. And even if they do, even if, you know, he doesn't stay with them throughout the next season or whatever happens to him in his career i think this is a day that you know we're all going to remember and i think certainly for for christian erickson it's you know it's just the best case scenario so i'm really really happy about that we got to see him play a little bit this weekend but let us move on caleb to la liga i think it was a busy busy week in spain do you want to begin with a man who burst onto this, who's kind of burst on the scene in many ways, I think kind yeah. of applying his trade somewhat under the radar for Villarreal. But, but talk to me about Jeremy Pino. Yeah, Jeremy Pino, the 19-year-old uh, 
Spanish soccer player, Villarreal youth player, now first team player, um, who has been, I think he made his debut last year, but he is really, really good. Um, and I think partly because he plays in La Liga and there's slightly less focus there, has gone slightly under the radar. But under the radar no more after against uh, Espanyol this weekend, he scored not one, not two, not three, but four goals in a 5-1 drubbing of you know the second team from Barcelona. And I think if people didn't know who he was before, they know who he is now. And so just wanted to give a shout out to him for just the great quality he showed in sort of a right midfield position. And I think he is just another one of this set, this suite of sort of young Spanish players that has me really excited um, for what La Furia Roja uh, can put together on the international stage um, in the coming years. Yeah, I think suddenly Spain are equipped with a lot of really interesting attacking options going forward. Pino being one of them. I think, you know, the rejuvenation of Ferran Torres in a Barcelona kit, you know, obviously he's not had the easiest of starts, but I think he's made a pretty decent beginning to life in a blog around a shirt. Certainly is going to be a key player for Xavi going forward. And yeah, I think he's very finely poised with a bunch of players who can play, you know, a to ball still very much in the fold too. And so I think a bunch of these kind of like hybrid players who can play in a variety of positions can only mean good things to the Spanish national team going forward. Caleb, a big, big derby though happened this weekend in Spain. And to be honest, this is one of my favorite derbies in all of Europe for just how absolutely bananas this thing can get. But talk to me about the Grand Derby, please. So El Grand Derby, which is, you know, the Sevilla Derby between Sevilla and Real Betis this year, you know, arguably had more import than in a long time, as it was a battle between second and third. Um, interesting lineups from both sides. Obviously, Jules Kunde uh, was suspended for this one after getting a red card. Um, Jules Kunde couldn't didn't play. Yes, exactly. Uh, so Fernando, you know, thirty what five year old Fernando, center defensive midfielder, had to drop into center back. Not exactly what they wanted. Um, ended up going two one uh, to Sevilla. Uh, and it was two, you know, former Barcelona players uh, that, you know, sealed the win. Rakitic uh, scoring a, a very measured uh, penalty in the 24th minute. And then Munir coming off the bench after Papu Gomez uh, was injured, scoring a, a pretty excellent uh, sort of first time shot. And, you know, definitely making sure that people remember the name. It was just it was just a great. It was it was just a great little game or big game, <laughs> the, the biggest, the grand. biggest of the games. Um, and it's also fun just because there's a lot of good storylines here in terms of the personnel. I mean, there's a ton of former Barcelona players involved. You know, Claudio Bravo, Mark Bartra, Christian Teo, Hector Bellerin, um on you know Betis, and then you know Rakitic, Munir um, on Sevilla. And so I think this was a great advertisement for you know, La Liga and, and what, what, what La Liga is capable of. Um, so yeah, I don't know. El Gran Derby definitely living up to the name. Um, and Sevilla will be happy to have, you know, taken the points and remain in the hunt uh, for La Liga six points behind Madrid um, as it stands. Yeah. I mean, I think this is a huge game for the context of the La Liga table too, because had Betis won this game, they would have moved within two points of Sevilla in second place. 
Uh, Sevilla would have moved a bit closer to Barcelona, who are you know, gaining points at a rapid rate, had an amazing result this weekend, which we'll touch on. And I think Betis have been you know, one of the, the form sides in Europe in the second half of the season, you know, they had not lost a game in six coming into this, you know, they've been beating teams by, they've been putting a lot of goals past a lot of decent teams, you know, beating Zenit 3-2 in the Europa League. They put four past Real Sociedad away. They put four past Espanyol. They put four past Levante. And so this is a team that has been highly capable at scoring goals and Sevilla, I thought, really handled them quite well in this game. You know, another testament to Yulin Lopetegui and how he's able to set up this team in a really organized fashion. I thought the midfield of Rakitic, Delaney, and Jordan was extremely solid in this one. And, you know, Rakitic is someone who continues to play at, you know, an exceptionally high level, you know, back at his old club at the age of 33. And long may it continue because, you know, as I think... If you're a long-serving listener of Corner Kick, you know that we have, you know, a deep affection for Sevilla, you know, their hems and their club culture on this podcast. So not to say that we don't like Real Betis, but, you know, certainly I think, you know, our hearts are with, are with the red side of Seville. Yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, right, just to kind of top it off, this was a battle between the best defense in the league in Sevilla, who have only conceded 18. They have a better defense than Madrid, who have conceded 20 versus the second best offense in the league. Betis have scored 48 seconds to Madrid with 52, and they have more goals than Barcelona with 46, Atleti uh, with 47, and Villarreal with 47. So these are both really top teams, and they really went at it, and yeah. And let us wrap up my section of the pod before I <laughs> depart and leave you in the capable hands of Nathan yeah. Strauss with Barcelona's 4-0 drubbing of Athletic Bilbao. Caleb, I have two questions for you regarding this game. Absolutely. One Shoot. is Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang. Is yeah. he the type of forward that this Barcelona team have desperately needed this season? Yeah, I think obviously, I mean, we've had this discussion on, on the podcast, but there were questions about whether he was was the right signing whether you know his heart was really in it whether he was super over the hill and i think the answer is a hundred times he is been a great signing he's a poacher he still has enough pace i think our issue with both suarez and gutzman is neither of them are i would say like the most mobile or pacey players and so as they aged that became you know readily apparent but abemiang knows where to be he knows how to get a goal and he's playing with just such joy right now five goals in three games. Um, he, he could be, you know, the linchpin to the second half of our season, which is, is shaping up to look, you know, really, really strong. We thought that, you know, February might be a difficult month uh, for Barcelona, you know, with having to play, you know, Atleti, Espanyol, Napoli, Valencia, Napoli, and then to top it off, Bilbao. But we went... You know, we didn't lose a game this entire month. Um, we scored, you know, four goals uh, in our last three games and four, four, scored four goals four times in our last six games as well. Our offense is firing. Our midfield looks fantastic. Almost everyone is fit right now. I mean, we saw Depay get a goal in this game. Dembele was a revelation. That's my second bench. question. Yeah, okay, maybe just ask your second question. I can just keep Yeah, keep, so keep going. <laughs> Usman Dembele, 
brought on for Ferran Torres in the 67th minute, provides a goal and two assists. He has been, I think he's been exceptional since his, you know, reintegration into the team. You know, obviously he's still a player that as of right now is going to be, he's going to be departing the club in the summer. However, I think this is an early indication of a, you know, Usman Dembele being, you know, a bit more of a, I think being a bit more of an asset that we thought he was going to be, you know, certainly could be a key player for this Barcelona team in the second spell of the season. And also it speaks to Xavi really succeeding in his first big instance of uh, man management as Barcelona manager. Yeah, absolutely. I think more than anything, this is a testament uh, to Xavi. And I think on the in terms of our, our play, we've improved dramatically. I mean, our last game in or one of our last games in January was, you know, that three two loss to Bilbao in the Copa del Rey. Um, and where we've gone since then has been nothing short of amazing. Pedri is just godly with, with his skill. Um, it, it baffles me every game. He seems to get better. But on the Dembele point, I think and I was one of these people, I was like, never play him. Right, like let him rot on the bench or don't even put him in the squad, use him, you know, as little as possible. And Chavi very publicly was like, That's not what I'm going to do. I want the fans to get behind him. I'm going to use him how I see fit. And so far, Demple is playing, you know, about as well as I've ever seen him play. He seems a lot more comfortable in the side. And I think we are weirdly edging towards a scenario where I could see him staying. As he sees, you know, the progression the whole team has taken under Xavi. The flip side is that, you know, with all of these great performances, he's also demonstrating his value um, both to the club, who obviously he felt didn't value him, or at least his agent didn't feel value him enough, but also, you know, potential other clubs too. But I think you're right. This is a masterclass in man management by Xavi about how to use, um, you know, all the resources you have while managing, you know, the chemistry and morale of the team. And frankly, Barcelona look about as good as they have in the last month as they have in the last five years. Um, and to be able to say that in the season you know, that Messi left um, is truly fantastic. And I really do feel like we could win the Europa League now, um, which is not something... I, I think felt, they are going to win the Europa know, League. I think they are by far and away the, the most quality team left in that competition. And you look at like suddenly the depth that Xavi can call upon on the bench uh, with the likes, you know, think about, you know, Dembele can come off the bench. Uh, Nico Gonzalez is a very capable midfielder and come off the bench. Depay came off the bench in this game. I think there is a sudden deep pool of options and options with a lot of tactical flexibility for Xavi to call upon early on in his reign here. And even without, you know, the likes of Danny Alves, someone who's really experienced not being registered in Europe, I think they certainly have enough firepower. They've been putting the ball in the back of the net, which has kind of been a new experience for Barcelona this season. I certainly dispatch Napoli with, you know, relative ease. Napoli, who are hunting the Serie A trophy this season. I think, you know, if you're looking for a futures pick on the Europa League, look no further than FC Barcelona at the minute. Right, and I would just say, like, at least on the Alves point, Dest is another player that I think in the last month has made dramatic strides in, in his performance and the trust Xavi has put in him. So I think if, if there were questions on, you know, whether Xavi, the, you know, all-time great midfielder would translate into a, you know, great, fantastic coach, I think February 2022 
has has probably and rather decisively answered that question. And this rather decisively puts an end to my time on this episode of the Corner Kick Podcast. <laughs> but I will leave you in the very capable hands of the lovely Nathan Strauss. Thank you, Nick. You'll notice that uh, I am no longer Nick Govindan. As you mentioned, this is our, our midway point or, or slightly past the midway point where uh, Nick departs for the stage and I come in from the rain uh, to take over here. So, of course, we're back here on Corner Cake, Nathan Strauss and Caleb Rhodes. Nick didn't give me any fancy introduction, but Caleb, I, I did hear you refer to yourself uh, or to your finishing as Keppa-esque, uh, which I think is pretty appropriate from the times that we shared a pitch together. Yeah, I don't think anyone would mistake me as a, a clinical finisher, that's for sure. But that's okay. That's okay. Well, we figured we would get started on this part uh, with obviously the, the major news of the last week. And before we get into the soccer side of things, uh, Caleb, I know you and Nick touched upon the sort of geopolitical uh, you know, crisis at hand with Russia invading Ukraine. Uh, obviously, this has had huge implications on the soccer world. And really swiftly, uh, you know, Monday morning, 8 a.m., basically, FIFA and UEFA both decided to kick uh, Russia out of their competitions, along with other um, international uh, sports organizations like the IOC and uh, the IIHF. Uh, and this also extends down to Russian clubs. Uh, so Spartak Moscow, who were competing in the Europa League, are no longer eligible, uh, meaning their next opponents, RB Leipzig, get a free pass to the next round. I guess I'm curious, because this is a really, really tricky thing to judge. It is such a Pandora's box, but I'm curious where you stand on, on FIFA and UEFA's decisive action. Yeah, I think it's interesting to describe anything FIFA or UEFA does sort of decisively. I think in general, I I do support this in part just because, you know, FIFA, UEFA, you know, the IOC, et cetera, have lavished so many opportunities onto Russia in particular. Obviously, they recently had an Olympics there. They recently had a World Cup there. There are lots of pictures of, you know, Putin at the last World Cup with Infantino, with Mbappe, with the World Cup trophy. And so I think, you know, of all the nations, perhaps, um, Russia does have, um, I think, a cozier or had a cozier relationship with these sort of major you know, sports bodies. And that was purposeful, of course, because, you know, they, they're using it as a form of soft power. I mean, it's no surprise that, you know, Gazprom, the largest uh, Russian-owned oil company, is one of the biggest sponsors of the Champions League, despite the fact that, you know, to my knowledge, it's not really like the gas that I, I get at the gas station. And it's unclear what, what one does when they see that sponsorship. Unlike the Carabao Cup where, you know, people get inspired to go to their local shop and, and purchase the wonderful uh, sports drink. But I agree that it's, 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 it's a Pandora's box for sure, because there are a lot of, you know, countries in the world that do a lot of bad things and don't suffer consequences like being, you know, barred from World Cups or having their clubs, you know, barred from uh, club competition. But in this particular case, keeping it very, very narrow, I think you can justify um, what UEFA and, and FIFA have done. Yeah. So it's kind of hard because a lot of my feelings about not just the sporting level, but sort of how the US 
responds to uh, to Russia right now is so multifaceted. I, I hate that I said the word multifaceted there because it's such like a poli-sci, uh, like an intro poli-sci buzzword. Um, but in general, I support the move in principle. The problem is, is that um, I think it places an unfair burden on Russian athletes in particular. So there's a lot of talk right now about like the NHL, for example, temporarily like voiding um, Russian visas in the States. And I just think that like, it's, it's such a dicey situation because for example, Israel, like, I mean, like, like this is, this is like, or not even just Israel, Israel or uh, any other sort of nation that's, that perpetuates some sort of like um, violence across borders they're all guilty of the same crime or the same sort of violation. It's just that Russia is the largest and probably the most prominent when it comes to uh, sponsorship. Uh, and I think this move sort of reeks of uh, some sort of like faux moral superiority or high ground. So I understand, you know, I understand FIFA all of a sudden saying like, look, Russia, like we don't want you competing because uh, their their initial thing was they didn't want them competing under their own flag, just like um, you know at the Olympics, Russia obviously competes competes under what the uh, what is it the the Russian Russian Olympic Committee Russian Olympic Committee like ROC with the Olympic flag. I understand that move, and I would fully understand uh, you know countries like Poland uh, not wanting to play Russia and sort of legitimize them in that context. Uh, and frankly. The, the Israel example that I mentioned, the reason that Israel plays in UEFA and not um, and not in the and not in, in Asia is because Israel's neighbors refused to play them. And so Israel had to turn to a different confederation to get matches in. And that's why Israel is a, a UEFA member, for example. So I don't know. I think it's a very crappy Pandora's box because we live in a world where soft power is exerted by America, England, all of these sort of uh, empires in their dying or in their tail stages right now. And it's so hard for me to validate on like a, on a moral level, a decision that like penalizes Russia when other nations that also commit um, sort of colonialism or imperialism uh, don't see any of the same punishments, if that makes sense. Even though I agree with the decision, it's still hard for me to reconcile those two things. Yeah. I mean, I don't really want to open a whole debate about, you know, like right. the ills of, of all these other countries. I think that's a much, I think it's a different discussion and not, I, I understand the point that you're making, but then I think I would say like, don't even try to justify this on moral grounds, justify it on like a lot more self-interested grounds. Like for instance, as I said, you know, like FIFA, UEFA, these are relationships that have uniquely close relationships with Russia. And so purely, and we all know that those organizations themselves are not held in in super high regard. We know that they're incredibly corrupt, hence, you know, why they have relationships with Russia, why the World Cup is in Qatar, et cetera, et cetera. And so this is just the type of thing where this is like an easy win for them, I think, to get, you know, a few publicity points. And I think it also is the type of thing that might, you know, have the biggest effect. I mean, in an you know, oligarchy like Russia, I think you do need to sort of attack the highest profile people and and make them hurt because that's the only way you're going to get like the madman of Putin to, to change his tune. 
And so I agree that the sort of moral argument is complex from a first principles basis because there's probably a certain hypocrisy there. But I think there is, you know, just a purely self-interested justification too. And from a consequentialist perspective, I think it, I think it will have um, positive effects or it could. And I don't have, you know, especially given the silence, there have been a lot of Russian celebrities um, and important people in that society that have spoken up against this war. And, you know, Russian soccer players in general have, have not been amongst them. And so as of now, I think this seems like a perfectly fine thing to do in my mind. Yeah. And I think it's interesting too, because we may as well segue into what this has meant for sort of individuals in soccer. Um, there were a number of really great outpourings of support for uh, Ukrainian players on the continent. Um, there was a, a really touching moment between Oleksandr Zinchenko and Mikolenko of Everton when those two teams played uh, this weekend. They sort of shared an embrace uh, at the center of the pitch. Ruslan Malinovsky had maybe the best game of his entire career less than 24 hours after um, the invasion commenced. Uh, and then uh, Roman Yeremchuk was subbed in uh, in Portugal this last weekend to a standing round of applause, and, and that made him tear up. And it's uh, it's happened, you know, for for other Ukrainian athletes as well, not just in soccer, but also in basketball. And, uh, you know, it's clear that this is something that's incredibly meaningful. Um, it's great to see the support that people have uh, been displaying to these Ukrainian athletes. But Caleb, like you, I'm pretty surprised that Russian soccer players in particular have not been a little bit more vocal considering how many other types of Russian celebrities have um, been able to, I guess, speak up. Yeah. One more just quick sort of anecdote to add to that list. Um, you know, not all Ukrainian players, I think rightfully felt that they were in, you know, the correct headspace to be able to, to, to play, which I think is completely understandable. Um, but so, you know, Andrei Yarmolenko, who plays for West Ham, you know, asked for some sort of personal time from the team and all of the West Ham players wore, you know, Yarmolenko seven jerseys and then their captain Declan Rice, you know, held up a Yarmolenko kit. Um, and then West Ham stadium, they, the outside, um, has like, you know, screens and they were able to light it all up, um, with the Ukraine flag, but back to sort of your question. Yeah, it is pretty interesting that, you know, Russian soccer players, Russian national team members have been very, very, very silent um, on this issue. Um, Mikalenko, who you mentioned earlier, uh, called out the captain of the Russian national team, Artem Zuba, um, on, was it Instagram or, or Twitter, um, for his silence. Um, and I think this is just like another reason, though, um, why I think, you know, there, I don't even know where I'm going to this. I think it's just disappointing, but I understand that, you know, it's probably a potentially unsafer thing for them to do, but it would also be, I think, a courageous thing and a meaningful thing. Um, but on the flip side, we know that, you know, <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm going too far. We know that Russians dope in the Olympics. And I think based off of their performance in the, the World Cup in Sochi, I'm willing to say that a lot of them are, are tied up in a lot of the corruption around this too. Um, AKA like Denis Cherishev playing like out of his mind in the tournament. Just stop me if I'm, if I'm going too far, but I just, I feel like they might be like in deeper 
um, compared to, you know, some other like pop stars or something in Russia that, that have been able and have been, you know, posting like no war um, slogans on, on their Instagrams. I don't know what your take is or whether I'm kind of conspiracy theorizing here a little bit. No, I think, I think you're on the right path. Um, I would also think that in part, you know, Russia is one of the most domestically comprised national teams in all of Europe, looking at their roster from their last round of qualifiers, um, back in November, there are only four players who aren't based in Russia on this team. You've got Alexander Golovin, who obviously plays for Monaco. You've got Alexei Miranchuk at Atalanta. You've got third string goalie Nikita Kaikin, who plays in Norway. And then you've got Fyodor Kudryashov, a 34-year-old playing for Antalya Spor, who are actually leading the Turkish division right now, I believe. Um, but even if you look at the um, sort of recent call-ups, only one of the 23 players who have been, quote, recently called up is not based in Russia. So that would make, what, five of 46 players that Russia basically has in their talent pool who are not domestically based. And I have to think that there's a really strong correlation between a player's willingness and ability to speak up and their proximity to Moscow. Um, and yes, for a number no, of reasons, 100%, I, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for a number of reasons, I am incredibly sympathetic with players who share anti-war sentiments who are not able to publicize them because, um, you know, if there's anything that, that Caleb, you and I should understand, it's that um, your safety has to come first. Right. Um, and so when you are living in a place with um, when you are living under under threat of sort of internal uh, domestic, you know, investigation, if you do speak out, um, I'm, I'm pretty sympathetic to that. And that's why I don't really read too much into or I can't really read too much into any one player not speaking up. I do yeah. think I do think that like it's commendable when it does happen, but also like man, it, it must be hard if you're like living in Rostov or Krasnodar or St. Petersburg or Moscow to suddenly be like, oh, like why don't I just speak up against this state and like the state entity yeah. which owns? I mean, because you saw that when the U.S. released their first round of sanctions, CSKA Moscow was one of the was one of the teams that had their assets froze because of how tightly they're tied into. Um, I think it's CNB Bank in Russia. So right, it's like, right. it's so interconnected that it's- Well, and Zenit other, is basically yeah. owned by Gazprom. Well, right, well. exactly. So yeah. it's like, it's like you really are so limited. And that's why I just don't want to like, I don't want to shame any player who doesn't. I understand why a Ukrainian player might, however. No, right. I think in a weird way, like, yeah, I think it's totally understandable why, you know, even the captain of the Russian team or especially the captain of the Russian team might for very good reasons, even if they support, uh, you know, or sorry, you know, support not there being a war um, would would be silent. Um, but I definitely also understand the frustration of someone like Mikalenko. It's in, it's similar in its own way to, you know, in the Olympics that uh, that 15 year old figure skater who, you know, clearly clearly doped, um, and then it was kind of hidden by you know Russia. Um, and at the same time, though, you're like, well, she probably really didn't have a choice. Um, right to, to dope or not, um, which I think just points to the sort of pervasive, you know, nature of of sport and politics and sort of repression and you know danger that that lurks around like every corner in this society. So yeah, maybe maybe I'll maybe I'll back off a little bit. You know, I don't want to read too much into silence, but again, I think Mikalenko is right to be like 
calling out Zuba and being like, you could be the type of person to, to make a difference, or it would be a very, very courageous and I think meaningful act um, to do that. Yeah, of course. And I think it's also funny how, how many tie-ins this has with like, um, you know, cause I, do you remember when Mohammed Salah was pictured getting an award um, from, I want to say maybe the, <laughs> maybe he was the, the, the dictator or leader of Chechnya um, and sort of, uh, it, it, there was, there was some sort of picture that surfaced this last week. It's like, is it this like isn't, this best, isn't a yeah. best Muslim soccer player from or something like that. Yeah. Or something like that, because it's like, it's not, this isn't, these topics aren't obviously just like limited to right now. And so I think it's interesting at the same time that this is happening last Wednesday night in the, she believes cup, you had like, uh, you know, athletes on the U S women's national team wearing wristbands that said, you know, like protect trans kids after sort of last week's event. So athletes, I think, are empowered to speak up in different ways. And I think it's totally conditional on um, all of the things that we've touched upon right now or so far. But um, on that note, we may as well talk about some of the... Uh... So we want to talk about Tuchel and Oh, yeah, Chelsea. Let's, talk about, let's talk about Tuchel and Chelsea. So, because, yeah, so, Caleb, you, you take this away. Sure. So obviously, you know, amongst all these oligarchs being sanctioned and, and being kind of caught up in this, you know, Roman Abramovich, who may have kicked off the era of, you know, big billionaire money in soccer, announced last weekend that he would sort of be stepping away from his sort of more active role in the club and was sort of giving some more authority to sort of uh, the board and, and the caretakers. And it the rumors are today that uh, he may even be entertaining, you know, offers for the club. But obviously, you know, having a Russian owner in this moment poses, you know, difficult questions for the team. And I think Thomas Tuchel was asked a lot of very difficult questions um, about, you know, what it meant to have a Bromwich running the club, what the players felt about that, et cetera. And he was, I think, pretty exasperated in his response being like, it's not his job um, to talk about these things. And, and it was kind of inappropriate for reporters to ask him. I'm pretty sympathetic to that view. I don't think that it's the manager's uh, I don't think the manager should really be put in the position where he is like expected to talk about these things. I think it's, you know, the current caretakers of the club, the people who, you know, Abramovich have empowered the stewardship um, over who need to sort of go in front of the press and answer those types of questions. Cause I think they are questions that, you know, deserve to be answered, but maybe, you know, managers or, or players are not the right people. Journalists should be asking about it or at least expecting answers from. What yeah, no, I, I, I agree completely. I think it's totally unfair, especially when you consider that just like any other sort of business, there are operational people and then there are sort of the management and he is ops like soccer head coaches are not running clubs. They are dealing with primarily on field matters. Now, I think it would be different if Tuchel had some sort of like other connection to the crisis at hand, but he doesn't. He's just managing the team. And I think it's reasonable to ask a question like, uh, you know, hey, like, obviously, the club has been rumored to be changing hands. How does this affect your day to day? But pressing him on sort of the relationship that he might have with Roman Abramovich, like there's only like, I, for, for, from a journalistic perspective, I don't understand the value in that. Because what's he going to say? Like, again, you can't really bite the hand that feeds you too much. It's also just like, in my mind, barking up the wrong tree, like you said, like, there are the people who are actually, you know, the shareholders or the the board members who are the ones dealing with this. Tuchel's primary, secondary, and tertiary concerns all lie on the pitch. 
And so I'm just not a huge fan. I wasn't a huge fan of the line of questioning. And I think that reporter actually crossed the line, um, especially doing it in like a public sort of pre-match kind of forum. It would be different if they had called some sort of like special press conference to address it. Uh, and keep in mind, like I'm a huge believer that sports and politics are like firmly and inextricably linked. I just think that you have to be like a little bit tactful about it and um, be like remotely aware of who you're asking these questions to. Right. And I think I, I actually agree with you. I think the appropriate thing, even though I understand why they wouldn't want to do this, would be for the current people running Chelsea to have a press conference to talk about these very issues. I don't expect them to do that because that would, you know, put them under a lot of pressure to perform in front of the press. But I think you're right that that's the real setting for these types of things, not a, a pre-match uh, presser, despite how interlinked sports and probably especially soccer and, and politics are linked. Um, I think though we've I think we've talked through a lot of of our feelings and and some of the storylines that have come, you know, out of the fallout of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And I'm sure this is a story that we will continue to be touching on um in 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 the future. Hopefully um you know hopefully for not much longer and hopefully you know Ukraine can depend defend its independence but certainly not a story that's going to go away um, but maybe we should switch to some of the more you know <laughs> operational should we say soccer bits now and recap you know uh european competitions post you know spartox exclusion yeah let's uh let's do that because obviously the world uh the world keeps spinning it was a pretty uh pretty busy week again uh as far as soccer goes last week obviously you had the second leg of Europa League ties you had the continuation of the first round of or the rather the first leg of Champions League ties I don't feel like we need to spend that much time on Chelsea beating Lil 2-0 um although uh I mean that no. sort of went as expected it was it was a tough draw and I did not watch that game instead I watched Villarreal uh hold Juve to a 1-1 draw after Dusan Vahovic scored about 30 seconds into his Champions League debut. I've been saying this all along that Juve are just not a threat whatsoever, even with their new signings. And this game really reinforced that against a Villarreal team that basically played, <laughs> they played a 4-4-2, but their two strikers were Giovanni Lo Celso and Arnaud Danjuma, who are both naturally sort of a wide mid and a, and a center attacking mid by trade. So if you can't get through that, then uh, it, it's a pretty big indictment of where Juve are. Oh yeah, I agree. I think this this Juve team has has problems, and especially problems after this game. You know, with Weston McKenney. Uh this is the game, right, where he he broke his foot. Um, yeah, he fractured a, a one of the metatarsals, I think, in his in his foot. Is that the official? Term? Yeah, yeah. So he'll be out for a little bit, and he's been a very important player for them. Um, you know, I thought things for a moment might might sort of be turning the corner for Juve with you know Vlahovic scoring. Um, you know, within a minute in his first. Uh, ever Champions League game, to my knowledge. I don't think Fiorentina have been in the Champions League recently. Um, but I think it does show that, you know, there there are changes that that need to happen at this club. And I also think we shouldn't underestimate uh, Villarreal, who, you know, at the top of the show, uh, Nick and I talked a little bit about how dominant they were against Espanyol and who have, I think, especially, you know, with the addition of someone like Lo Celso in the January window, um, a pretty deep, squad um and and a squad that works really well for Unai Emery um in this 4-4-2. Yeah, 
No, I mean, Unai Emery does have a knack in uh, in sort of two-legged elimination ties. Uh, it's sort of his, it's really kind of his biggest uh, sort of superhero strength, if you will, uh, as a manager. The next uh, the next day, we saw Atleti and United draw 1-1. And then we saw maybe the most entertaining game of the, of the first round. Um, Benfica and Ajax playing to a 2-2 draw in a game uh, which saw almost five total combined uh, XG. So let's start off with Atleti and United. This game, I was pretty sure that Atleti were just going to steamroll United. And instead, we saw more late heroics from Anthony Alanga, who's having a sort of Marcus Rashford kind of ascendancy right now uh, for the Red Devils. Yeah, I think... You know, this was a game where Atleti finally kind of looked like the Atleti we've expected them to, you know, be like all year. Jao Felix, I thought, was really bright. They hit the post, you know, at least a few times. I think Griezmann hit the bar. And unfortunately, despite the fact that, you know, in very typical Atleti fashion, you know, they only had about 40% possession, but they outshot, you know, Man U um, two to one, but only at the end of the day had one shot that was on target. Um, and unfortunately, you know, conceded that late goal as what was it? Felipe was was desperately, uh, or one of the defenders was desperately stretching his legs to sort of beat that through ball from Bruno Fernandes. Um, it's interesting now because I think Atleti probably should have won two nil in this game in reality, but now it's one one heading into Old Trafford. I'm not sure Old Trafford's actually the most intimidating venue um, these days, but certainly you have to give at this point like advantage united yeah no absolutely um although i still sort of have faith that uh i i thought both goalies were, were pretty poor on the day even though i think de gea has actually probably outplayed oblock on the balance of things uh this year it was a i, I had never heard of ray nildo who started center back for atleti Maybe that's bad. Oh, yeah. And no, I don't no. know. I had totally missed that he transferred from Lille. Yeah. Because he's yes. one of those players who um, you know if you play FIFA Ultimate Team because he is pretty much the only player you're going to pull from Mozambique. Uh, yep. So I, I, yep. I don't know. I, that was that was a surprise. I wasn't a huge fan of Simi Vershalko as a right wing back. Uh, I think why not just move Llorente out there and throw another center mid in there? Also, shout out to my boy, Hector Herrera, who is moving to the Houston Dynamo on a free transfer this summer as of today at the oh, uh, really? tender age huh? of 31 years old. He's only 31. Uh, yeah, isn't that wild? Yeah. yeah. I guess, though, if you if you are like a, you know, if you are like a Mexican player, you know, maybe making a move back to North America at the age of 31 makes a little more sense, especially because he's very much, I think, a squad player. Um, at Atleti, um, and, and a useful one at that, but you know, he's not the difference between them winning or losing on most occasions. And, you know, I'm not sure the team will suffer that greatly without him. Cause you know, the other player that was signed, I think last year, the same window as him was Kondogbia, who I think recently has been like truly stellar. Um, and, and I hope that, you know, he, he gets rewarded with, you know, some France caps after his performances recently. But you know, good yeah. on Herrera, I guess. Yeah, for good on Herrera. To... I mean, it, it certainly makes sense. Uh, and and thirty one, I think, is a good age to move to MLS. It's like because yeah. MLS is actually a competitive league, but we don't have time for that right now. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we don't Benfica, have time for a lot of things. But... We don't have, yeah, was, uh, uh, Benfica and Ajax. I was 
<laughs> I was positive that Ajax were going to win this game like 4-0 oh, God. to the point where uh, there may or may not have been a wager involved that 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 sort of that sort of comprised like 10 hours worth of, of my labor. Oh, um, but Ajax went up early 1-0 courtesy of Dusan Tadic making a sort of traditional late arriving run. Sebastian Hilaire scored a kind of exceptionally bad own goal before scoring a real goal uh, three minutes later. And then Roman Yeremchuk scored uh, equalized for Benfica after Ajax really uh, um, shot themselves in the foot uh, in the second half. I still have advantage Ajax in this tie. Um, Ajax, you know, outpossessed Benfica. They outshot uh, Benfica in terms of shots on target. They missed some really good chances. Haller didn't uh, exactly cover himself in glory, but uh yeah, I was not thrilled with how this game went for my own personal reasons. Yeah, I think what you're seeing though is I think these are some fairly evenly balanced sides that kind of in a, in a weird way have, you know, a similar construction with a kind of mix of youth and also sort of great experience. Probably Benfica leaning a little bit more on the the great experience with, you know, like Otamendi and Vertonghen and, and Tirat. Um, is sort of the center of the park. But then, you know, Darwin Nunez, um, who has been Darwin, right? His name's yeah. Darwin. Yeah. Um, who's been really excellent this year um, in Liga Nos um, versus, you know, Ajax that have, you know, Hilaire and, and Tadic um, and Daily Blind, but then obviously someone like Graven Birch and Anthony as well. So I think I think this is, you know, a a a fun tie. And I think you probably underestimated, you know, Benfica's quality a little bit. Yeah, I probably did, but uh, we we that uh, we shall see. So that concludes that concluded the first leg of all of the Champions League round of sixteen games. Honestly, the Europa League did not disappoint on Thursday. <laughs> it was full of just absolute bangers uh, from Dortmund going out to Rangers, as we sort of predicted they might, following their first leg, to uh, Barcelona looking like Barcelona. I know you talked about Barcelona um, a little bit earlier in the show, but do you want to talk specifically for a second about what they did to Napoli? Yeah, I mean, they did a lot of things to Napoli, mostly just, you know, thrashing them from the beginning to the end of the game. I mean, this was probably like, I mean, I think I probably talked about this earlier this episode, but this was the performance of the season so far. I mean, Frankie de Jong's goal was nuts. Um, you know, one of these shots where it's curled so perfectly that the goalie, all he can do is just watch it go into the back of the net. It reminded me in a way of, you know, when Luis Suarez nutmegged David Luiz and then scored, you know, a similar finesse shot um, from a little closer in against PSG way back in the day. Um, but I think this, this is what Barcelona, you know, look like now and Napoli who are currently, you know, top of, Serie A, they have the best defense in Serie A, conceded four goals um, against Barcelona. And I think, you know, a few months ago, I was concerned that we would get bounced by a Napoli side this good. And instead, you know, I look at the Europa League draw and the teams that are left, and I feel I feel pretty good about where things uh, might end up come the end of the season. Yeah, hard not to. Uh, and I think the the transfer business that that Barca yeah. did in January yeah. has, uh, has really paid off. Um, other games that day, uh, Sevilla held on 
taking out Dinmo Zagreb, uh, meaning that they will advance and are they are going to be one of the favorites in this competition along with Barcelona, simply because it's the Europa League, um, but also because they're a team that has also strengthened themselves uh, really well, um, even when they played a pretty rotated team in the second leg, uh, having been up 3-1 against Zagreb. Uh, Porto went through against Lazio. Atalanta uh, surged past Olympiacos, courtesy of two goals from Ruslan Malinovsky, as we sort of uh, talked about earlier. Um, but the real shock of the day, I think, was Rangers scoring twice uh, to take out Dortmund. Uh, obviously, they had that dominant first leg performance, but uh, it's a real L for Borussia Dortmund, even though obviously they were without uh, Erling Holland. And if anything, this uh, this definitely seals his fate. Not like that was going to change much. Yeah, uh, I think this is definitely, you know, Holland will not be uh, <laughs> around Borussia Dortmund squad come this time next year. Um, there's definitely a lot of frustration in the Dortmund side, which I think still hasn't really worked out its defense much at all. I mean, Emre Chan was deputizing at center back. Um, Schultz was playing at left back. And I think in an interaction that typified, you know, where this Dortmund team is at, at least in these hyper-competitive games, uh, Schultz overhit a pass that was meant for Jude Bellingham. And Bellingham, clearly really frustrated, started just yelling at him and swearing at him, basically saying, you're really bad. You always do this. Like, oh, and... <laughs> <laughs> with, with, with a little bit, a little bit more, uh, with a little bit more of a Birmingham flair uh, yes. than, than that. But I think you know that that kind of says it all. And I think mean, you know, Jude Bellingham is also, I think, a you know, well watched, well wanted youngster too. And so I'd watch this space on Rangers side. Though I don't want to minimize, you know, this achievement um, really carrying on some of the good work um, that they had uh, under Gerard with with Van Bronckhorst as their coach now. Um, and also, you know, like Tavernier is criminally underrated. I think he's perfectly happy staying in the Scottish Premier League. Um, but, you know, after a, a, a kind of, you know, middling uh, career up until his move to Rangers in 2015, you know, playing with Wigan, um, he has just been just totally dominant um, from that wide back position and contributes a fairly shocking amount of goals and assists from like the pure right back, not like a right wing back um, position. So I just wanted to shout him out because he of course had the double on the day, um, which ended up sending Rangers through. <laughs> 75 goals now in 330 games at right back. That's that's sort of Danny Alves, Kafu type numbers right there. Yeah. Um, he's, and he's for the English slash playing in the Scottish league Kafu. Yeah, and I mean, like that. for a guy who came out of the Newcastle Academy as like an 18-year-old and then played in the lower leagues for a while, um, it's it's good for him. I think yeah. Rangers are really good. Though. I'm a big fan of Calvin Bassey, who started at center back for them. Mm -hmm. uh, he's Nigerian national team quality. Um, and obviously, Joe Aribo, who's also Nigerian, uh, I thought was really, really good. And of course, uh, legendary uh, Liverpool youth product, uh, Ryan Kent. But... Uh, other notable results, uh, sadly, FC Sheriff Tiraspol uh, tumbled out after Braga put two past them. Uh, that sort of ends that. Whatever the, the what's the, what's like the inverse of a fairy tale? Whatever, whatever however you want to describe Sheriff's sort of uh, unlikely rise to prominence this season. It's, it was more kind of, you know, like Brothers Grimm. Yeah, I you know, say. exactly, exactly. Um. It was like, it was like a, a fairy tale meets Black Mirror. Um, 
Yeah. So, so there was that. And then, of course, Leipzig uh, turned on the Jets and ran away from Sociedad, who I think will probably be better off um, focusing on La Liga the rest of the way. Yes. And so maybe, you know, just before we go, there has, in fact, been a draw in the Europa League. And so we can just kind of quickly go through some of the choice ties in that. Porto Lyon, um, I think, offers something rather interesting. Betis Frankfurt, I think Betis um, will hope to, to go pretty far in the competition this year. West Ham, of course, said you know a few months ago that they wanted to play Barcelona. They will play Sevilla instead. Um, and at this point, they're probably much happier for that. Leipzig, as you said, get a bye uh, because Spartak Moscow have been canceled, according to uh, Google. Uh, and the, the fixture <laughs> scheduling. I'm sorry. I just, I just find it so amusing, this whole like right-wing perspective on this whole conflict that this is Russia being, quote, canceled. Well, and it see, drives it's me. Not even, but it's it not even, me. Caleb, it's not even right-wing. A New York Times reporter just tweeted out that we're seeing the first geopolitical, <laughs> quote, cancellation of our day, which is the most New York Times view that you could ever ascribe to the situation. Um, it's, um, it's, it, I sorry. really, I don't, really I don't mean to make if, light of this. I just think it was, I just think it was funny the way no, it's, 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 yeah, um, I, I I understand the real. I think there's a couple banger ties here, by the way. Uh, Atalanta versus Leverkusen. That's like pure Europa League. Um, Barca Galatasaray, I don't think will be particularly competitive, um, but it'll even... be interesting. And also, I feel like, you know, going to Turkey is always, I think, a challenge uh, in, in, in these European ties um, because the stadiums can just be so raucous there. So, yeah. And then uh, Rangers and Red Stars Vezda has. Um, eight red cards written all over it. Um, <laughs> Absolutely. That game is going to be awesome. <laughs> that game is going to be awesome. Talk about t- probably the most passionate set of fans in Europe. When Arsenal used to play at Red Star in the Europa League, it was like legitimately terrifying. Um, but Rangers being Rangers, they're used to it. So uh, yeah, I have to say, I like the chances of Barcelona. Um, I like Betis getting past Frankfurt. Uh, I think it's totally possible that we end up seeing three Spanish teams in the last eight, um, or rather, excuse me, I know how to do, yeah, three Spanish teams in the last eight. In the last team, which, yeah. believe it or not, is not the most uncommon thing in the Europa League, but would still be um, exciting. And I, I do look forward uh, to some tasty action. The one tie we didn't mention so far, Braga Monaco. I don't care. Honestly, might have the least interest <laughs> in it. <laughs> yeah, I wish. I wish I could say. I wish I could say that I, I really cared about. I that really wish. Jones. I really um, wish that I could. I could bring something out of that. There's but... so many great ties coming up, but that's just sadly yeah. not one of them. That one sort of just is. Um, like if you ask me to name like four players on Braga, I don't think I could. They have like Ricardo Horta, I know, and that's kind of yeah. It. As someone who like, it'd be genuinely... a good game to scout like Chumeni. I think if if you haven't watched him in Ligue yeah, um, and, and we're but, only two weeks away. We're only two weeks away from the second leg of the Champions League round of 16 and obviously um, the Europa League round of 16 and the Europa Conference League round of 16. I find it hard to focus too much on the Conference League until maybe it gets down to like the final just because of the sheer volume of teams in there. It's really hard for me to get hyped up about, say, uh, Vitesse versus Roma or Partizan Belgrade versus Feyenoord. Um, but I'm sure we'll keep an eye on that out of the, the very peripheral uh, part of our eye on that as the season comes to a close uh, there. But I think that might wrap it up. This is going to end up being like an hour and a half worth of corner <laughs> kick content. You, you guys really lucked out uh, on this one, but we should be back uh, as scheduled next week with a full weekend 
worth of soccer. You've got Madrid Sociedad this weekend. MLS is back. PSG take on Nice. Uh, Liverpool play West Ham. That game should be a pretty good one. Uh, and then you have the likes of Arsenal and Watford and Barcelona Elche, which I think Caleb should have us feeling uh, in good spirits. So we may as well bid you adieu. And obviously the biggest match of them all, uh, the Manchester Derby on Sunday as well. So we may as well bid you adieu on that note. A lot of ground covered. Uh, in fact, this episode is like the N'Golo Conte of corner kicks with the amount of ground that we covered. Uh, but... I've been Nathan Strauss. Yellow Breads. And next time, we'll keep it a lot more brief, but we'll see you then.